What I want to do this morning in the slot, the time we have together, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you not to stop. I want to encourage you to keep fighting. I want to encourage you to keep walking. I just want to encourage you. When you became a Christian, when you came to Christ, or better, when you surrendered to Christ, when you called him Lord, whenever that was, and I know for some of you that would have been decades and decades ago, and for some of you it would be relatively, relatively recently. But the moment you did that was the moment that God got hold of you and said, I want you to be part of my purpose. I want you to be part of my plan. I want you to be part of my salvation story. God takes hold of you and me and says two things, at least two things. Number one, your life matters more than you imagine. And secondly, I want to use you for my glory. You were designed for much more than you would ever imagine. You were designed for much more than you were ever told. Your life matters more than you could ever imagine. God wants to get hold of you and use you in ways that are beyond your imaginations. And I just want to encourage you that that truth, which is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is true for you. There's not one of you in the room that this does not apply to. Everybody in the room is carrying something. Everybody in the room is carrying away. Everybody is carrying responsibilities. Everybody's tired. Everybody's thinking, I can't do another thing. But in the midst of the very real life you're already living, God says, I've got a purpose for you. You're mine. And I just want to encourage you. I want to do it by asking you what, has God called you to build? What's he asking you to do? What's God doing around you? What is it that you won't give up on? And it'll be different for each one of us. But what's the thing that God says, it's yours, I want you to do this? And most of us asked a question like that would go, I don't know. I really don't know. Most of us would answer, I don't know. But then if we sat long enough and had a conversation that was deep enough, we might find you ended up saying, I don't know what God wants me to do, but I'm really bothered about this. And it just may well be that this is what God's called you to build. You might be really concerned about your family. And it's that. And it's kind of like, that's the stuff. I mean... There's a sort of like lots of simple ways you can work out what it is. But one of the simplest ways is, what do you pray about most? Most of us feel like we're rubbish prayers. But when you pray, what do you pray about most? Because the thing you pray about most is normally the overflow of your heart. Which means that as long as it's not just about yourself all the time. But what do you pray about most? What bothers you? What do you get cross about? What do you get indignant about? Because it might be that that's the thing. What are you building? It might be you've got responsibilities at work and you've got a team of people and you're trying to get them to thrive. It might be, as I said, your family. It might be the church. It might be your community. But what's 
is it that God's got hold of you for? And it changes. It changes through life. But at every stage of life, it's like, can you name it? Otherwise, the danger is you live life going, I'm not sure why I'm here. And part of the church community's task is to say to one another, do you know why you're here on planet Earth? I don't mean in church. I just mean the big, big question. Do you know why you're here? Otherwise, time goes by so very quickly and you'll find it's gone and you'll have missed it. What are you building? What's God doing? What bothers you? What is it? I want to sort of encourage you by taking a last nibble at Ruth, which taken out of context would be very misunderstood. (laughs) Those of you that have been with us know that over the last weeks, we've been preaching our way through Ruth. And literally, um, I kind of intended that I wouldn't go back to Ruth after preaching through the final chapter. But there was something in the final chapter that caught my eye that I didn't have time to include last week. And it's, I think, it's kind of remarkable. You may differ in your opinion, but this is what I think. It's a couple of verses in the fourth chapter of Ruth. What's happened is, you know the story, if you've been with us, you know it only too well. Ruth, this foreigner, comes and she's a widow, and her mother-in-law, who she's with, have come back to her mother-in-law's family, to a family town, and both of them are defenseless. Both of them are widowed. They have no children. They are defenseless. And through a remarkable set of circumstances, they find someone called Boaz, who's this powerful, rich businessman who makes a sacrifice, really, of taking Ruth and marrying her, and in time, having a child. But that's not like Ruth is just this sort of uh, weak um, woman. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Ruth is subversive. Ruth is determined. Ruth is innovative. And Ruth makes a new future happen for everybody. And in the fourth chapter of this little, little book, there's a moment where the elders of the town say to Boaz, because Boaz says to the elders, get married, lads. And the elders say this, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. That's a remarkable thing for the elders of a town to say to a woman who has not been able to have children. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, when you read the bits in red, normally you go, fantastic. (laughs) I'm not really sure who any of those people are, but I'm sure it's good news. Let me tell you what they're referring to in red. It's a complicated story. It happens early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 38. This is the story, some of you will know it. Tamar is from a place called Canaan. She's a foreigner. 
And she marries the son, the firstborn son of an Israelite called Judah. And that firstborn son dies and Tamar is left widowed. Now, in those days, the way that God asked for a community to look after women who were defenseless in those days was if you were a father and your son died, it was your responsibility then to get the second son to marry the woman. It might sound a bit odd and it might sound complicated and it certainly was complicated, but it was a way of ensuring that the defenseless were cared for. It's not an all-time command, which is good news for some of you, but it was then and there. And so Judah... The man who knows the law says to his second son, you've got to marry her. And the second son says, okay. But the second son ensures that Tamar won't get pregnant. Because if Tamar gets pregnant, the estate is divided. That second son dies. It actually says it displeased the Lord and he dies. Judah says, I've got a third son, but you're not having him. <laughs> as a mother, you might understand, as a father or a mother, you might understand that. It's like you've, you've had two and they both died. And Tamar, the foreigner, is left defenseless. But Tamar knows that she has to have a future. So this is what Tamar does. Tamar knows that Judah, this older guy, is going to see his friends in another part and he's going to come by a road. And Judah, uh, and Tamar rather, dresses like a prostitute on the road. And Judah sleeps with her. And uh, Tamar takes his staff and his seal, a ring seal, not the other sort of seal, just in case. And Judah's embarrassed to go and get his property back because he knows he thinks he's been with a prostitute. Three months later, The people in the town say to everybody, Tamar, that foreigner, she's a prostitute. We've got to get rid of her. And Tamar says, these belong to a man who's in your town. These belong to someone who is respected. He's one of yours. And Judah says, they're mine. And he's shamed. And in the text, it says, this woman is more righteous than I am. And so in time, Judah takes Tamar and he cares for her. 
and she becomes a wife. It's a complicated story. It's a strange story. It's a story that you think, should that really be in the Bible? Because it sounds unsavory. But it's a story of an outside woman who's widowed twice, who says, I am determined there's going to be a future. Now, for any of you who've been listening to the story of Ruth, can you hear the echoes? Can you hear the echoes of an outsider, of a woman who has not had any protection, a woman who's made a new future, a woman who's determined that something else should happen, a woman who outrages social custom, a woman who says, you may think I'm defenseless, but I'm going to make something happen around here. A woman who knows she has nothing to lose and a man who's shamed him to do it. So when the elders say, you may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, it makes sense. Because Ruth is a foreigner. She's been widowed. She's vulnerable, but she's determined. This is about women who do what it takes to build a future. This is about women who say, I am not going to accept the second place. This is about women who go, I'm going to take some stuff into my own hand and develop something that will outrage other people. This is about women who go, I am not going to keep silent. And it's about men who have to wrestle with shame. Judah, who has to wrestle with shame. And Boaz, who has to wrestle with shame. Because at the midnight hour, Ruth is in the barn and she's proposing marriage to Boaz. And Boaz has to accept the shame of the custom of the day. Boaz has to go in front of everybody and go, I will marry the foreigner who's widowed. I will marry the one that everybody else has left alone. I will wrestle with shame. I will do what it takes. I will pay the cost just as Judah did. And to the blokes in the room, I'm going to make it really gender specific. When women say to you, I'm not happy about this. There must be more than this. Things are not right. How do you react? Some of those women that will say that, you're married to. <laughs> and it's easy for us to dismiss And sometimes it's in society where still women feel like if you speak up, you'll be branded a troublemaker. You'll be branded a feminist. You'll be branded a harpy. You'll be branded. And in the scripture itself, you have a story of men who go, I can hear you. 
I can hear you. Two couples, Judah and Tamar, Boaz and Ruth, and a third couple. The end of Ruth, um, as we read last week, you've got a genealogy. And Matthew, when he begins the gospel, he includes that same genealogy in his genealogy, and that's how he begins the gospel. You might think it's a strange way to begin a gospel, but that's how he begins. And the thing about genealogies in Matthew and in Luke is they weren't bothered about the same things that you'd be bothered if you were doing your genealogy. I, I, I like doing that sort of stuff. It's one of the nerdy things I like to do, and I've done it for myself. And it's kind of like, I know the frustration when you've tried to find out who your great, 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 great grandparents are, and then you work out, oh no, flip, I've got the wrong line. And then you have to dismantle it all and go back and start again. Because I can't not get it right. But in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't really seem to matter. He'll skip whole generations because he wants to tell you more than just the absolute detail. So listen to what Matthew does in his genealogy. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Just be confident. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And he goes on down, and by verse 16, he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And at that point, he disrupts his whole genealogy because he wants to tell you, as he's going to tell you in detail in a moment, that Joseph has to live with the scandal of a woman bearing a child that he will bring up that he knows is not his, born of the Spirit. <coughs> this is how, Matthew says in chapter uh, 1, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Here's another man who's righteous. And it's because he's righteous that he wants to deal with the shame in a way that doesn't mark Mary out for the rest of her life. That's why he wants to divorce her quietly. Because he's righteous. And it's God who comes and says, I want you to carry the shame that people will always say about you, Joseph, in the village. They'll always say, well, of course, he had to marry her. But it wasn't his. She came with this story of an angel and the spirit. And they'll 
always, Joseph, they'll always look at you and they'll say, Jesus doesn't look like you, does he? Looks like more like his mum. Can't see you in him at all. And they'll say that about you, Joseph, not just when, when he's a baby. You know, when you, you have a baby and then the different grandparents come and they go, oh, he's our side. You know, <laughs> Joseph, they'll say that about you all his life. He doesn't look like you, does he? And you'll carry that shame and you'll cover it. Because you're the powerful one, Joseph. Because you're the one that could quietly divorce. But you will be the one that carries the shame. And Mary? Mary's fearless, determined. There are three women in this sermon. There's Tamar, there's Ruth, and there's Mary. And Matthew wants you to hear that. And these women are powerless, but determined. Powerless, but determined. Everybody looks at them and goes, you can't make things happen, but they are determined. And there are three men. There's Judah, there's Boaz, and there's Joseph, who are powerful and fearless. And at this point, for us, you kind of think about your own situation, and it's not about gender anymore. But some of you are powerful because you can make things happen. Some of you oversee other people. Some of you make things happen. And your call is to be fearless and righteous. And some of you, you go, I'm powerless. I can't make anything happen, it seems. And there's a call to be determined. Does that make sense? They played their part in building a new future. And you and I are called to play our part in building a new future. Not just for yourself, but for those around you. Those things that you're really bothered about. Those things that you go, I don't know exactly why I'm here, but I, I do think it's got something to do with this. And you might have power, you might not have power, but actually it's the determination and the fearlessness that says, actually, I think something new could be born here. And as followers of Jesus, the only question is, is it in the footsteps of Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? That little portion of scripture from Matthew that we read ended by the angel saying to Joseph, call him Jesus, because this child, he will save his people from their sins. <laughs> Pardon? That's good. They don't all come out looking like that. It's okay. <laughs> Some of them look a lot better. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're about to give birth in the next two months, you might just want to close your eyes. <laughs> we're, 
Whatever you're building, know this. That the biggest obstacle to whatever we're building is not like a resource, it's not structure, it's not other stuff, it's actually sin. And that's why Jesus comes. Not just to save us from our little sins, but actually to take on sin, capital S, sin. The stuff that actually bends everything out of kilter with God's great design. That's the major problem. I don't know how you felt on Friday morning when you woke up. Or indeed on Thursday night when you went to bed knowing what the exit poll said. I suspect not many of you stayed up all night to watch it. For some of you, you'll have been delighted. And for some of you, you've been really disappointed. And for some of you, it was like, I just voted none of the above. (laughs) As Christians, how do we reflect on the politics of our own nation today? Well, there's loads that could be said. And some of it's that you see knocking around sometimes can sound trite. But I think this is to be said. There's a danger that we end up trusting in the wrong things. Politics is necessary, but it's limited. Every politician will tell you that. A hope, and the hope for our nation, was never going to be in... Remain or leave. Our hope for our nation is not in a second referendum or in a coalition. It was never in a coalition or in a Tory majority or a new Labour government. None of these things can deal with our root malaise because our root malaise is sin. And it doesn't mean to say you don't get involved in politics. You do. It doesn't mean to say you shouldn't vote. You should vote and you should have voted. And if you didn't, there'll be another one. But our root malaise is the thing that Jesus comes for. We should expect better from our politicians and we should hold them to account. But we shouldn't expect from them things that they can never deliver. That's why the community of God's people exist. So what are you building? What are you fighting for? What are you saying? I'm determined. What are you saying? I'm going to be like Tamar. I'm going to be like Ruth. I'm going to be like Mary. I don't care what other people think of me. I'm going to go for it. I'm not care what people will think about my reputation. I don't care about the customs and the social niceties. I'm going to make a difference. What are you building when you know it's going to cost you When you know that actually you're going to have to deal with shame, perhaps. When you know you want to make a difference. Three couples, Tamar and Judah, Ruth and Boaz, Mary and Joseph. The thing they all have in common, God was at work. God was at work. Dare you believe That in the very thing that grips your heart, that God's there, 
that God wraps you into his purpose and says, listen, it's not just your thing, it's my thing. Dare you believe it? What are you building? What won't you give up on? Apart from questions about some of the slide pictures there, what were you thinking? <laughs> we're going to pray in a minute, but I think we've got a little bit of time. What's going through your heads? What's, what's, what seems important? What would you want to resonate with? What would you want to echo or underline? What would you want to ask about? What would, just what are you thinking? Any of you? I'll start us off then. Um, I was just thinking through that <coughs> genealogy and some of those characters I don't know that well because my biblical knowledge isn't as good as it should be. But I was just thinking just how many, how many of that list were that from, from whom the Messiah came were really, really broken people who made big mistakes. Not just the ones you mentioned, but no, no. Yeah, if, you look at, if you look at David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. So Solomon comes from an illegitimate relationship. And then you've got... Whose you've father got, killed. Whose father killed the, the husband. You've got all sorts. Isaac was a liar. Jacob, you know, or Jacob was a deceiver. You know, you've, got, you've got all these people in this, in this group. You've got um, Rahab, who's a prostitute, the, father, the mother of... Boaz, you, you know, you've got so many and, you, and yet you've got all this scandal and shame and all these broken people, but then that's where Jesus comes. And I just think it just reminds me again just how, one, that the Bible is really, really, really earthy and, and doesn't gloss over any of this stuff and nobody's, that, that, that nobody's celebrating all those, those shameful acts, but that God's saying even from the mess of people's lives and the mistakes they make, I still brought the Messiah, I can still do something incredible. Yeah. And that gives, it's got to give us encouragement that even when we make mistakes, even though they might be regrettable, even though God wouldn't want us to do them, God can still make something incredible happen and still do something good. And I think it also puts a lie to that, the, the sort of cliche that you will have heard before. You know, before you can do anything else, you need to get your, your act together. Get yourself, it has to start in me first before anything else. And there's that... There's a certain sense of that, but actually the danger with that is you'll never be good enough. <laughs> you'll never be ready. And God seems to take great delight in taking hold of people who go, do you know what? I'm fairly rubbish Christian. And God goes, right, you're the exact sort of people I can use. And the ones who go, no, actually, I'm, I'm perfect. I'm sorted here. God goes, I don't think so. We'll overlook you. And... Um, so this morning, if you're sitting there going, do you know what? I'm, I'm not very good at this Christianity lark. You're kind of like ideal, ideal. <laughs> Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you that are poor in spirit. Blessed are you that mourn. Blessed are you that long for righteousness. Blessed are you that long for purity. Because you know you're not there. 
It's a good point. Anybody else? There's uh, Steve up there. Yeah, just when you were talking about, um, you know, why are we here and what we're here for, we were listening to a song last night and the guy's talking about some relationship breakup or something, but the line of the song is, I'm not calling for a second chance, I'm screaming at the top of my voice. That passion that, I'm actually not just going to ask about this or talk about this, but I believe in it so much, I'm prepared to scream, I'm going to shout until it happens. Yeah. And whatever God's called us to do, that's the passion that we've got to have for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Anybody else? Charlie? So it's the same story throughout the whole Bible, just time and time again, that the strong that have the strength take the shame to protect the weak so that the weak can become everything that they're always meant to be but haven't quite managed it because of their circumstances. Might have been their fault, might not have been their fault. That's not the point. Uh, God, in his strength, sends Jesus and takes our shame. Mm. So that's his constant pattern. And, and we're, we're to be like him, that as we come across weak people... If we have any strength in any area of our lives, whatever it might be, we're always meant to be trying to cover and help so that people can be set free mm. from those things that are holding them back. Thanks, Shelley. It's true. Just perhaps one more, two more. Yeah? A couple down here. I can identify with the women in the, today's message a lot. Um, personally, I'm really encouraged because there are things it I'm worked. supposed to do that <laughs> <laughs> I can be determined. Like you can go for it. Don't don't just um, think about the powerlessness. You know, just God can still do something great. So I'm determined to go for it. There are those things that I know I should be doing. Yeah, yeah, I can go for Brilliant. it. Thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, Jill at this side. Um, it just occurs to me that there are two lies that hold us in the place that we're in. And the first one is that our life has to somehow measure up to a Hallmark card, that it has to look perfect from the outside, that it has to measure up to some standard of perfect that none of us ever reach, and that other people have that sorted better than we do. And that we're the ones sort of letting the side down somehow. And the other lie is that we are powerless. And that's what our enemy wants us to believe. He wants us to be absolutely certain that there's nothing that we can um, prevail in. And the truth is that God is alongside us in everything that we face. And nothing makes us powerless because every prayer we pray moves the hand of God and I'm just reminded this morning that nothing nothing bad nothing disastrous nothing tragic comes from the hand of God but God is really good at reaching into tragedies turning them inside out and turning them into victories I wonder if, uh, if, thanks, Jill. I wonder if the folks can come back who are playing for us.
And uh, we're going to pray together. Um, the, the desire, as I said at the beginning, was really just to... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I had my eyes closed. <laughs> um, the, the, the desire at the beginning was simply to encourage you um, by sharing with you something I'd seen that had really kind of gripped me. But it's, in a sense, if that's happened for you, then as was said, then it's kind of like, well then, keep going. Keep moving. Don't be half-hearted about it. Scream at the top of your voice about it. What is it that God's asked of you? And without sort of making a big deal out of it, but you know, there's some days where it's just good because you go, actually, Lord, I know what it is and I know where I've been and I'm, I'm kind of recommitting myself to what you've asked of me. And if you feel like that, if it feels like that recommitment moment, then do you want to just stand and we'll pray particularly for you? Probably not going to be all of you, but it's going to be for some of you. You just go, yeah, it reminds me the thing I'm called to, the thing that God's asked of me. Family or work, church, relationships, social stuff, the big issues. And it's just a recommitment. And if you know what it is, then just stand. If you know that actually it's just been a bit sort of like beaten down out of you a bit, and you've grown used to living a smaller life, then this is your moment to go, no, I want to go for it, God. I want to be recommissioned to the thing you've called me to build. I want to be like Ruth. I want to be like Tamar. I want to be like Mary. I want to be like Joseph, a man who's willing to cover for Mary. I want to be like Boaz who uses power well. I want to be like Judah who repents and then uses his power well. If that's you, then just stand. And we'll pray. Father God, you know how easy it is for us to grow cold and how easy it is to coast in our spiritual life with you. You know how easy it is for spiritual, our spiritual life to become about ourselves. And Lord, you've called us to more than that. And Lord, as we stand together, we stand as people who recommit ourselves to the calling you've put on our lives. Lord, I pray that your power and your creativity and your determination will rest upon these people who are standing. Father God, just stir up all that's in within them. Stir up the gift that you gave them. Recall them to the calling you put on their lives. Lord, enable them to walk determinedly into the future. Lord, give them the ability to create a future and not to take no for an answer. And Lord, for those of us who sit, some of us sit because we're not sure what you've called us to. Lord, make it clear, we pray. 
Help us to listen to our own discontent as a sign of what you might be calling us into. Help us to hear you speak to our own situation that, Lord, we won't let it go, but, Lord, we might be part of salvation's story. We thank you that Jesus, who came and died, uh, who, who came in order to set us free, his own people free from their sin. Lord, come and do that, we pray. And Lord, for those of us who struggle with that, Lord, set us free, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just welcome the Spirit amongst us, just where you are, whether you're sitting or standing. And if you're sitting, you might want to stand, but just welcome the Spirit. Just ask the Spirit to come and to fill you. Just come, Holy Spirit, rest upon us, we pray. Stir up stuff that's laying dormant for too long. Lord, give us a new passion for you, we pray. May your Spirit come and overwhelm us again. Come, Holy Spirit. Okay, your turn, just where you are. Not so other people can listen, but just so that you can hear yourself speak. You start to pray out your own prayers of reflection. I know you can pray in your mind, but let your lips say what your heart would want to be true. Just start to pray. And you might find that in time, we are all praying without having to listen to one another, but it's the overflow of our own hearts. For those of you that speak in tongues, then this is a moment where you can just use that because it's actually allow your spirit to pray. For those of you that don't, then speak in English and just allow your own heart to overflow in prayer. It's your moment to ask God to do the things that you know you want God to do in your own life and amongst you and around you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray.